Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. We're taking a dose of our own medicine with a short summer sabbatical as we focus on some other projects. While we're away, we're going to be setting up a health centre in Switzerland and offering heart-based medicine to Ukrainian and Swiss families. We'll be back again with you in the fall. And until then, we thought you might like to listen to some earlier podcasts with some notable thought leaders in the medical world, which haven't yet been broadcast. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. David Hamilton. He's holding a PhD in organic chemistry has been designing and developing drugs for many years with large pharmaceutical companies. And during this work, he has been increasingly intrigued by the placebo effect. And in a scientific pursuit, he has become one of the leading scientists on mind-body connections. In today's call, we're discussing observations and the increasing body of evidence in the placebo research and science, and we're speculating and hypothesizing whether there could be a mechanism based on resonance between the healthcare provider and the patient, which may allow the patient to either amplify and increase the effect or actually decrease the effect of any kind of intervention, whether it might be a placebo or a drug, or some other healthcare intervention aiming to contribute to healing. Let's welcome David Hamilton. Wow, what a joy to meet you. What a... uh, you two have heard so many nice things about you. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy. <laughs> well, it's good to finally connect. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, yeah. David, you're, you're a scientist, you're a PhD in organic chemistry, and you've been working as a pharmaceutical industry in drug design development. And you, uh, one of the things that that struck me a lot about the messages that you're that you're sending out is that you, the more you were into you know development of small molecules, at some point you realize like what about that other part and why is it so hard you know to get to get these trials to get the human effect out of the equation and to really get kind of crystallize the molecular effect and then to see what this what the impact is on the non-intervention side of the arm yeah yeah so i was really intrigued in this as as this is something i've been struggling with methodologically a lot in observational studies and in clinical mm. trials and only much later it hit me <laughs> like god if this is so difficult to get rid of this effect <laughs> Why, yeah. why are we not embracing it more actively? And why did I never hear anything in medical school? I, I know, and I, I often wondered about, you know, why we're not embracing it. And I think that people are not traditionally taught. I mean, I, I play tennis. I, I live in a small town that's very famous for tennis. It's the town that Andy Murray, the former world number one tennis player, grew up in. So it's a, tennis is a big thing here. Uh, and I play tennis with, with a couple of doctors. And, and I also have... You know, a lot of my family work in the National Health Service in, in the UK. And you start to realize that no one has, no one's ever really been trained in yeah. harnessing the understanding of the placebo effect. I mean, my, my a former family member of ours who used to be married to one of my, one of my family is a consultant in a big hospital. And having gone through five years of medical school and another five years to be a consultant, had only ever got 30 minutes of a le of an elective class in the placebo effect and it wasn't how to understand it and use it for the benefit it was the ethical considerations around yeah. describing it and i thought 10 years of education and you get 30 minutes which you don't even have to attend and i thought i think it's time you know for a shift and i think the shift's happening because yeah you know, there's so much good research now that shows that when you, you know, you believe or you expect something, you, for example, you get a placebo for pain and you expect it to work or you believe that this is a painkiller and your brain produces its own morphine, you know, endogenous opiates. So the brain's natural versions. So when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, it was a company called AstraZeneca. Yeah. And my colleagues at the time would often dismiss the placebo effect with one of two things. It's just a placebo effect with a sweeping movement of the hand, or they're not really getting better. They just think they're getting better. 
but but now we know from neuroscience research that that isn't true at all. In actual fact, when someone believes or expects something, there is a chemical change in the brain that brings about that which they're expecting to happen. So it's a real physical effect in the brain that's causing the physical change in a person's symptoms. So there is something. So that, that quality of research, I think, is beginning to waken up the mainstream to the whole idea of the mind-body connection. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing when I when when I hear you talk about this, and now again, it's just it just resonates so well. Is that? Yeah, it seems to me this is one of the key key pieces that really need to change in, if you like, in the next generation of you know healthcare providers. I, I, their education is is how can we how can we actually bring the effect of the healthcare provider back into the equation? Yeah, you know, one of the things I've talked a lot about, and I gave this lecture actually to, to a big hospital, an, an NHS hospital in the UK, and it was about, you know, we know so much about stress. And, and, and if you think of, you know, when you, a person feels stressed, it's the feelings of stress that generate the stress hormones, are you the cortisol, the adrenaline? It's not the situation itself. I mean, outside of real severe, difficult situations, most of the time, it's not the situation itself. It's how you feel about it. It's your response to it. But that feeling of stress then generates stress hormones. But in what people don't realize is if you think, what is the opposite of stress? Most people will say, oh, it's peace or it's calm or it's relaxation. That's not the opposite of stress. That's the absence of stress. The opposite, <laughs> of, the opposite of stress, physiologically speaking, is actually, if stress is the feeling we're talking about, then it's the feeling associated with being kind. Mm. So when you be kind, and psychologists now refer to that feeling as elevation, and it's a broad term that, that roughly describes that feeling of warmth or connection that you get from being kind, or maybe satisfaction or inspiration, but there's a, a heart-centered, a heart-based feeling that you get that's associated with being kind. Now, that feeling generates the hormone oxytocin, which as well as being a trust hormone in the brain, it's also a very potent cardiovascular hormone. And one of the things that it does is it lowers blood pressure. So it produces nitric oxide, so it dilates the arteries and it produces blood pressure. So it's called cardioprotective. So therefore, any mechanism, any way of producing it is a cardioprotective behavior. So here you have now, we can say that being kind, because of how that makes you feel, because it makes you feel elevated, being kind because of how it makes you feel is cardioprotective. And there's a real mechanism, there's a real physical process that occurs that's physically affecting the body just through being kind. And I think I love seeing that kind of research coming in now. Yeah, that is that is you're making such an important point in that um, I saw quite often, similar to the sweeping placebo <laughs> dismissal, <laughs> there is there is this yeah yeah this is psychosomatic, yeah, yeah. right? And so this is a very similar um, this is a very similar phenomenon, and so the, I was wondering, um, you know, there there's such an an increasing bulk of evidence around actual direct effects on the body. So not just, you know, I had a childhood trauma and therefore now I have an issue with some organ, mm. but because of, because of how my consciousness, how I'm directing consciousness because of the intentions, because of the way that I'm, visualizing mm. or intending on some level um, on the process towards a state of health rather than a state of disease. Yeah. How that is not a psychosomatic phenomenon yeah. of, yeah, you need to heal your childhood trauma, but there is actually a way of how the body, how the mind can directly govern Absolutely. body functions yeah. down to the genetic level. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think when people use that term psychosomatic, it's often used in a, like a dismissal kind of sense. Yeah. Like it's just psychosomatic, meaning there's nothing really, nothing really there. And I think now that we're understanding the mind-body connection, you mentioned visualization there. I mean, one of my favorite scientific studies was done by a professor at Harvard called Alvaro Pascal Leon. 
very famous neuroscientist, and he got a group of volunteers to play a sequence of five notes on a piano. So basically with each of the fingers, plunk, 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 up and down a scale for two hours, you know, on and off for on five consecutive days. So like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And he, he scanned the brain each day and he found that the region of the brain connected to the finger muscles grew like a muscle. So by the Friday, it was about 30 to 40 times bigger than it was on the Monday. We now know that overall phenomena, broadly speaking, is called neuroplasticity. Okay. But a separate group of people, instead of playing the physical notes with their fingers, they played them in their mind. So they closed their eyes, put their hands flat on a table, uh, and just imagined that they were playing the notes. And it's called kinesthetic imagery. So you imagine what it would feel like to play the notes. So you, you, your hands are flat, but you imagine the feelings and the sensations as if you really were playing the notes with your fingers. So you, as best as you can, you're imagining how that feels. Now they, had, they did that for two hours in their imagination, visualizing on the five days as well. They also had the brain scanned and on the Friday, on the fifth day, the same region of their brain connected to the finger muscles had also changed by a factor of 30 to 40 times. And if you put the brain scan side by side, you actually can't tell the difference between who played the notes with the fingers and who played the notes in their mind. This underpins a lot of what we know from high-performance sports, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, many, many sports people use visualization. In fact, you know, a few nights, I'm a big tennis fan, and a few nights, as I mentioned, and a few nights ago, I watched the Indian Wells final. It's the Indian Wells Masters 1200, one of the biggest of the year. And an 18-year-old girl called uh, Bianca Andriesco, a Canadian uh, girl, won. She's 18-year-old, and she, she beat the best in the world and, and won this tournament. And one of the things that all everyone was talking about as she moved from the first round to the second round, the third round, fourth round, the quarter semis and won it. They were all talking about how she open about the amount of visualization she does. She has a daily practice of at least 15 minutes a day visualizing hitting the ball with perfect strokes. Yeah. And now there's a testimony to the power of visualization. She's an 18 year old, came from nowhere in the world and wins one of the biggest tournaments of the year. Amazing. Daily visualization. And so, and she built upon the fact that many sports people use that. The brain scans I showed you really just demonstrate how it works. That when you imagine something, the brain processes it as if you, in other words, brain processes it, it stimulates the same brain circuits as if you really were doing the movement. And because of that, that then impacts the actual physical muscles that you're imagining. So therefore there's a physical change in muscle performance in the body. So something you're doing with your mind is having a physical effect on the body. And that's why it's so useful for high-performance sports. It's just so amazing. And it's wonderful to see that now, you know, this has been in high-performance sports for years. Yeah. But now this has been kind of a trial and error, and it's been a kind of a, a, a pursuit that has proven yeah. to work well. And now with kind of more technology becoming available, we can actually demonstrate this. This is amazing. That's yeah, kind yeah. Of yeah. One, one of the things that I that I struggle with is that, and you know, you know this, and you're, you're teaching meditation classes and, and then you practice yourself. And, and when we, when we're not looking at the brain from the outside as scientists, but we're kind of looking at brain activity from the inside, mm. everybody practicing this for just a very short time, very soon, you know, within minutes, everybody, nothing dramatic, nothing, fun, you know, nothing extraordinary, everybody will come to the point where there's nobody there, kind of there's nobody, there's no one there. There's mm -hmm. no point in the brain where I, that, that kind of says, I, you know, this is, this is me, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in our, I wonder what, what do you think about this? In, in our Cartesian way of looking at the brain, where we're saying if we cut a monkey's piece of brain out and then it doesn't speak anymore, therefore, this is where speech is generated, right? So the localized, hierarchical view of the brain. And, and we know that there's no kind of uh, coordination central, right? Or at least no MRI, no brain scan. We, nobody was able to pinpoint like this is the me, this is the I, this is the master of ceremonies, <laughs> that the integration point. Yeah. Given that that's not there, and given that that's 
that's at least the subjective experience of those looking into the mind from the inside. Mm. What does this mean for a healing process? Mm. I, I've thought about this huh. a lot because huh. I, I, like yourself, I don't really believe that consciousness or that which you are originates inside the head. Right. Uh, so, for, for example, when you look at brain activity, when right. a person is having an experience, what that tells you is what the brain is doing at that time. Right. It doesn't tell you that that part of the brain produces the, the conscious subjective experience. It only tells you that's what the brain is doing right now. And I think this is where the impasse is between you know, re- science and philosophy. And there's an overlap here, and philosophers are saying that some philosophers are suggesting perhaps consciousness isn't inside the head at all. Right. It just feels that way because you've had a lifetime of experience saying, if I do this, I can feel it here. So therefore, we begin to identify with the physical body so much so that it literally feels like we're here. But maybe that's just because we've had a lifetime of experience of identifying with that. Maybe, just maybe, as some philosophers are entertaining and as many meditation teachers have spoke about for millennia, really, uh, that perhaps if you take that to its logical conclusion, if consciousness is not inside the head, then then where is it? Well, the next logical assumption is it, it, everywhere it just feels like it's here. But what does that mean for healing? Well, I think that tell that maybe suggests that we're capable of far more than we think we are. And perhaps many of the limitations that we experience are not the the same limitations that we think they are, but uh, in part, to a degree, related to what our perception of them is and whether we think such and such a thing is possible. And I say that because as our beliefs shift over time and we begin to believe more and more things are possible, we seem to be able to achieve more and more things. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that a person could just you know, get rid of a condition, maybe a genetic condition. You know, maybe in hundreds of years' time, I don't know how far our understanding of consciousness might go. And I'm not trying to suggest that people right now, if they're not doing that, then there's something wrong. I'm just making an observation that I think there's something in that. And I think that which we are is more than what we see when we look in the mirror. And I think our capabilities, whether we have the ability or the knowledge and, and know how of tapping into them, whether that whether we have that ability or not, I do feel that we do have much more ability than we would ordinarily think we have. Uh, and I think we're capable of more, what you might call miracles of healing, and perhaps some of the, what we might regard as the extreme spontaneous remissions, perhaps they, that have been documented for many, many different conditions, perhaps they have something to do with profound shifts in a person's consciousness that somehow demonstrate that we do have that capacity somewhere inside of us. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. So if there was a, in a way, medicine, it seems to me the way that I was trained in medicine, um, I came into medical school with a lot of enthusiasm right? Mm. To help and to make, you know, to alleviate suffering and whatever it might be. And very soon this was replaced by busyness, you know, learning all the uh, organic chemistry formulas. Oh dear. dear. (laughs) All of that. And, and, you know, until that time, because that's when the exam was. And so it's very brainy memory kind of heavy, you know, it's a very kind of better activity in the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the human being that actually was enthused in the beginning of the training was pushed into the background more and more. And from a um, philosophy of science perspective, was dismissed as you know not, not wanted actually as a as a potential interference with the pure objective reproducible observer mm. and similarly so it seems that this has happened with the patients mm. and so what you're describing really is is a call to put the patient back into the driver's seat mm. in in saying it's not that you as a patient have a problem and good old doctor or good old pharmacist 
has the solution for you. And if you take the pills, you're going to be happy again. Mm. Um, but it's actually that the way that your body has is now manifesting. And that is now by some people, by some learned people called the disease. Mm. That is actually one form of expression that may, and I, I hear from you, that's kind of the, the hypothesis. It may actually be due to a way that the person's, the patient's consciousness has influenced their setup. So as if we're saying that, say if our genetics, you're talking about genetic defects, if our, mm. if our DNA is like the hardware of the computer, um, during our lifetime, we, up, we, we load a lot of software. Yeah. So there's kind of nature and nurture yeah. part of it. And, and depending on what we entertain, what we download, what we interact with, how we program our, how we utilize our hardware, the expression may, may shift. Yeah. And so the patient actually has the ability to influence the way their body expresses or functions. And this is something that neither the patient nor the physician is trained to support and promote. Yeah, I, I, I really, I really agree. Yeah. And, and I don't think we're, I don't, I mean, I, I've not been to medical school, but I don't see from conversations I have with, with other doctors is I, I don't see that kind of training taking place. There is a bit of a, a growing awareness of the, of the fact that the good relationship matters. I mean, there's, there's studies now that show that if a doctor, for example, shows higher empathy, then the patient might have a higher immune response to things like the cold. There was a study of over 700 patients that, that, that met where the doctor's empathy level was measured. It was like a care questionnaire, consultation and relational empathy study. And the doctors who scored highest on empathy, in other words, the relationship was strong as the patient felt listened to, they had almost 50% greater immune response to the cold or the flu. And I think that kind of study, even though it's only going a small way to looking at the effects of consciousness itself, it is showing us yeah. that the patient's state of consciousness is influencing their health. I mean, there you have a significant difference in immune response due to a measurement of empathy, which ultimately is telling us about the relationship between the doctor and the patient and the state of consciousness, therefore, of the patient. So there is beginning to, we're beginning to see that kind of evidence. And I think it's only a matter of time before that kind of stuff is routinely taught. And we start asking bigger questions about, you know, what does this mean in the bigger scale? How, how can we really learn? How can we really research this? And, and I, I think it's quite an exciting time, really. Yeah. <laughs> so totally exciting so so this is um let me let me ask you as a you were developing drugs you were designing drugs um so you know a lot about molecules and how they attach to you know other molecules on cell yeah. surfaces and that yeah. interaction and how you how you can actually construct something that really fits that part in the body signaling system yeah to achieve a certain effect if we combine this and and certainly a lot has been achieved through this kind of research and mm. you know uh, antibiotics just probably I, I still have a right hand um because thanks to antibiotics um, absolutely yeah so yeah. great we have these molecules yeah. <laughs> so nothing there's nothing wrong with that and yet you were just alluding to the effect of empathy. And before we talked about the placebo effect. And so there's a, there's a kind of difference between the placebo arm. Hopefully there's a difference between the placebo arm and the intervention arm of the study where, mm. where any kind of molecule or intervention is being used. Now, do you, from a drug development point of view, from a molecule development point of view, do you see that the patient has the ability to change the drug effect? Yeah. Kind of creating. So is there a way that, yes, here's the drug and it does it, it does the job and we may understand the mechanism of how it does the job, but the attitude that I take as a patient towards this effect changes the level of the effect. So I create a, yeah. like an enabling environment in my body through directing the consciousness in the way that you describe. So it's not so yeah. much of then I will be healthy. 
So you know, then you you said that beautifully with the with the uh, Canadian tennis, the eighteen year old tennis player. Mm-hmm. It, she wasn't imagining, if I heard you correctly, she wasn't imagining to to stand on the what do you call it on the podium. No, she was, but imagining. She was imagining the perfect movement. Yes, yes. So that's an important piece that you mentioned there. So is it? So what is it that patient could do to amplify the effect? Of the drug along the lines of what this high performance sport person did. Yeah, well, there's a number of, of different things. First of all, you know, one of the main reasons that I write about and give lectures and talks on the mind body connection, and I quote so much science, is I want to give people faith in themselves. Yeah. That when a person understands that, that what they think about, what they imagine, has a physical effect, has a biological effect, biochemical effect, therefore a, eventually a physical effect, then they start to expect more. And I think that can amplify that. Because what you mentioned about enabling, what research does show is, is, you know, if a person has a drug and they believe in it, then that, that belief in it, it creates enabling conditions. So you might find that that belief itself maybe amplifies the immune system or some other system of the body that creates an enabling environment that makes the drug work better. By the same token, through our maybe a lack of empathy, and therefore because we don't feel listened to or something or we don't believe something, then we can create a disabling environment and take the same drug and suppress its effects. So one of the reasons why I talk about the science of things is to give people belief in themselves. But secondly, you mentioned antibiotics. You know, a lot of people visualize if they have to take medicines, so they visualize their medicine working. So people taking antibiotics, they take the two tablets, say, glass of water, and they visualize the, the drug molecules dissolving into little particles. Then they visualize them going to the site of the body that the, the drug has to work. So they're almost that they're enabling it. Many people who get chemotherapy imagine the chemotherapy drugs in a very similar way. And they imagine the drugs arriving at a tumor site, like little piranha fish going, and they imagine the drugs like piranha nibbling and and the tumor getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And a a lot of people do that. And I've even had consultants, oncologists come along to some of my workshops because some of their patients who had really amazing recoveries had done exactly that and passed and said, well, I did this. And Few of them have, in time have handed a copy of my book to them and they've came along to workshops out of nothing other than curiosity to say, you know, I'm curious about this whole mind-body connection thing. It's not something I ever learned at medical school. I'm curious to see, you know, what, what the evidence is and how this whole thing kind of works. So in terms of enabling conditions, we can take what we're doing and I think when we visualize, perhaps what we're doing is we're creating conditions in the body that help the situation along. That was a conclusion from, there's been a a couple of randomized controlled clinical trials on women with with locally advanced breast cancer who were receiving chemotherapy or radiotherapy, but half of them were visualizing their immune systems working. So they would visualize their immune systems, like for example, piranha fish, and they'd visualize the immune system swimming through the bloodstream, arriving at cancer cells and and destroying the cancer cells. Now, in these randomized controlled trials, what you found is they fared better than those who just got chemotherapy and physio- chemotherapy and radiotherapy. But in addition, instead of the cytotoxicity of the immune system dropping through chemotherapy, it didn't drop much at all. And even after four cycles of chemotherapy, the immune system cytotoxicity of those who did the visualizations was still very high. And in the scientific, in the paper, the published paper, in the scientific journal called Breast, they said that something along the lines of, I forget the exact words, but it was something along the lines of that the visualization of the immune system seemed to be enhancing the immune system so that the immune system was working in conjunction with the mainstream treatment not one or the other, the immune system is working in conjunction with, and that is why you are having a slightly better effect. Isn't that, I think that's amazing, really exciting. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, so I'm a big advocate for teaching visualization techniques because they're harmless. They're not things you do instead of taking medical advice. You take the advice that you're given 
and good, you know, by, by a doctor, but you can use your mind as well. You can use visualization techniques as well as not necessarily instead of, but in addition to. And I think that's like an integrated approach. We're beginning to take the best of, of the West, if you like, and the best of the rest and put it all together and see if we can come up with something that's a little bit better than what we've had already, you know, forever. Well, for the last several decades anyway. Yeah. Amazing. That is, thank you. I mean, this is, this is an amazing, yeah, this is a very helpful um, piece of evidence here that really demonstrates how much, how important it is, or let's say how, the patient actually may play a way more active role than to be a passive receiver of something yes. that is saving their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that they're not sort of at the mercy of a drug working or not working at some, you know, prob some rate of some degree of probability, yeah. but it's something that they can actually invite to work and they can actually create an environment that, that this medicine works better. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about empathy and, and I wonder, as you, as you speak about this, when we talk about placebo, this typically comes in the form of, of something that looks like the drug mm. and, and it should look like and be indistinguishable for the investigator and the patient. And so hopefully nobody knows which one's which. Yeah. So at the end, it's something external. Yeah. When you talk about empathy, and when you talk about visualization, and that placebo isn't really outside of us anymore. That's no. something inside. Inside of us, yeah. So there is a, I don't know if, if we should use the same term for this, but there's something like the placebo effect. So the, the belief into something external that may help or not. Yeah. There is a, I think you, you mentioned it, confidence or, or trust into the body's own self-regulatory mechanisms yeah. we want that that kind of turns the patient into a placebo, if I may say so. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And, and and the other way around, if the physician is able to invite this, then or 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 the healthcare provider, the nurse or the therapist, whoever is working, or the friend or the husband or the beloved, yeah. Or, yeah, so yeah. If somebody is able to invite this confidence, trust, um, the inner placebo effect, whatever we want to call this, how does this work? What is the mechanism between the physician or the, the healthcare provider and the patient? Does it require the physician to take an attitude or take a certain degree of intention and then invite the patient into that space? Or is it mm. like the healthcare provider is yeah. creating an enabling environment for the patient to mm. create an enabling environment for a drug to work better, for example, or even mm. without a drug. I love that. I, I, I love that. I, you know, I, I think that, that one of the enabling environments that we talked about empathy mm. is listening. Yeah. And just, just giving someone the time to, 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 to speak, to communicate. Now that doesn't necessarily fit in a classical healthcare environment when a doctor might only have five minutes for a patient and a patient really needs maybe a quarter of an hour to, to get something off their chest and that listening to um, totally helps. But then add to that the intention of the doctor and the doctor now communicates, let's say, in a way that the doctor profoundly understands that if they speak with assurance and authority and explain to the patient that you will be okay, Perhaps they might even give them some techniques, some self-empowerment techniques, visualizations they can do, for example, or even reassures them about a form of medication, a line of medication. But if the doctor shows empathy and authority and shows that I really believe this will help you, but really has the authority and the empathy, I think that creates a beautiful condition. And certainly some reception placebo effect would suggest that that's how you amplify the placebo effect in a patient is to show empathy and authority and reassurance. I think we add to that education where the patient is educated in some way that they understand that some of the psychological techniques they can use, like visualization, for example, can and do 
have an effect. So I think we add these together, the empathy, the reassuring, the intention, the confidence, if you will, of the doctor. And then add that to the patient understanding that something they can do with their mind can have an effect. And that empowers the patient. They start to believe that, yes, this is not something being done to me. There's a relationship here. And I'm now being shown that I'm a participator in my healing. Exactly. And here is a technique I can use myself. And I, I think, put those three things together, and I think we've got something really exciting. Right. That perhaps is, is the next stage, uh, maybe, or, or part of the next stage. Wonderful. This is, ah, <laughs> oh God, what a joy to talk. I'm so grateful for Andrea <laughs> to connect us. This is, this is what heart-based medicine is about. This is, yeah. when, I, when I had this call <laughs> to completely change my career and focus on this, this was exactly the point. And yeah. this was the calling is how can we, how can we bring in the patient's self-healing capacity? How can we bring in the healthcare provider's healing capacity back into the equation? So how can they be a participant rather than kind of the, the healthcare provider being a almost almost like a, a salesperson for the pharmaceutical industry or a broker? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a drug broker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, some things, yeah. Um, so yeah, this is an instrument that is helpful just as practices are helpful, just as intention is helpful. And one of the elements that you touched on, in a way you touched on visualization, you touched on neuroplasticity. So as we go into repeated visualizations and we practice, you know, three days a week we practice. Um, so what, what might be the practices for healthcare providers and patients together to create this resonance. And, mm. and let, me, let me try and go a little bit into very close to woo-woo land here. <laughs> but, but it seems to me that if we, if we come back to meditation and if we realize that there, there isn't anybody in there, and if we just assume that that's the same for the other person, so there's actually nobody in there on either side, then we're kind of stepping out of the paradigm of I am the patient and I have a problem. I am the doctor and I have the solution. Okay, I will do what you say. That's a good idea. Mm. <laughs> let's hope nothing happens. Yes, let's hope nothing happens. So if we step out of this game into realizing that there's actually nobody home here, there's actually nobody home here, but we can create a therapeutic alliance but we go in a shared space with the intention on a healing process mm. rather than of a disease aversion process. Mm. What might this look like? Yeah, that, that, that's really beautiful. It, it's, isn't that, it's like both parties recognizing the, the, the important role that both play right. in the healing process. It's not something being done to someone else or received by someone else. It's, it's a joint process. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe that even involves as part of each consultation, a little sit down shared meditation visualization as a bond is really created as, as they affirm a bond. We are in this together. We are participating together in this, you know, the doctor saying, I am part of this healing journey with you. Let's sit down and you mentioned meditation, who knows, perhaps that's part of it. We sit down together, we meditate, maybe we visualize, but we're doing something that makes it feel like the patient is not alone and not being done to, but as, as an empowered participant and, and understanding that this is a very important part of the process. You know, and I think that's the key is the patient has to understand that this relationship is an important part of the process. The doctor, the physician must understand that too. You know, I've never thought about this until this conversation. This is great. So, so, so it wouldn't it be interesting if there is a, if this is an, if we have, if the patient is able to create an enabling environment for healing with or without molecules. And if the physician is able to create an enabling environment for the patient's self-healing processes. Could we, 
see that these effects actually amplify each other. So it's like when we when we take the image of resonance. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so here's kind of a whether this will translate. I'm not sure if this translates to brain waves or what kind of modality of energy this is. I mm. I don't really have a I don't really know what that might be, but. Yeah. We all know that sometimes we relate to people very easily. Chemistries, yeah. right? And we use the term, we resonate with them. We resonate with them. Yeah. So there is some form of, there's some modality that is recognizable, intuitive, intuitively yeah. recognizable to everybody. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. If we use the you know, acoustic wave paradigm or whatever let's just take a wave pattern and kind of here's a wave and here's a wave and they might either go a they might be asynchronous or they may actually turn into a coherent pattern yeah if we see this ease as a as a non-coherence mm. as somehow our body whether it's molecules or cells or organs at whatever level it might happen if we see this ease as a as a non-coherence and and health as a as a coherent state of being as a harmonious functional state of being could we extrapolate from the placebo research that if both go into this a shared placebo experience that is not taking an external looks like a drug thing but is taking an internal perspective yeah yeah I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I totally because you know basic physics tells us that if you take two waves that size and you add they resonate, you add them, the amplitude doubles. Exactly. So so what you I think this is an amazing thing. If two people do resonate together, then maybe that you know that shared experience that we intuitively understand that resonance, regardless of whether we we know what the waves are, we but we intuitively understand. The thing, so maybe it works the same way. And when that resonance, that resonance means there's an amplification of the the consciousness, the state of consciousness, the belief. Maybe an amplification of the the placebo mechanism that is the production of biochemicals in the brain that enable the increased healing. And maybe that is amplified. Yeah, probably we could. I think that's a good, a fair extrapolation to make. It'd be an interesting scientific study to do. Let's say at least why not, you know, let's say, let's say yeah, we yeah. can accept it as a hypothesis. It might yeah. be a little bit far out, but at least, as but, you say, it might be but, an hypothesis worth yeah. testing. Yeah, not that far out, really. I mean, it, it seems pretty logical, hmm. given the wealth of, it, of information we have so far. It seems pretty logical that some kind of amplified effect w- would occur. Wow, that's very encouraging. If you're saying this, looking so much into placebo research... That's uh, that's encouraging. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's really that's really intriguing. When we are, hmm, it takes me it takes me a little bit in a different direction. <laughs> let's let's explore a little side alley. Let's go and kind of circle this up, or sure. circle around this a little bit. I believe you were talking about um, the science of self healing. Yeah. That's something that is very, it's a topic dear to you. Yeah. And that is certainly relevant to the patient. Yeah. So if I do have a condition that I disregard as, that I regard as disease, are there ways for me to activate self-healing mechanisms through empathy and compassion with myself? If we talk about the, healthcare provider are you aware of research into this is basically what what i wondered in a way let's let's phrase the question maybe differently sorry just say um if we if we accept that the healthcare provider does have an effect on the healing process of the patient then i would like to see the training of a healthcare provider to be such that they are masters of health rather than brokers of molecules or yeah. surgical interventions. Yeah. So do you, do you see an argument for training healthcare providers to actually learn self-healing capacities for yes. themselves? Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And and find more I guess 
maybe you could say the more wholeness that you feel in yourself, the more healed you feel yourself. I think that increases your capacity for empathy and compassion in other people. And, uh, and, you know, compassion itself, you may be aware of this research already, but, but, you know, research into compassion Mm -hmm. has an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. You know, Typically, you can get volunteers doing a Tibetan Buddhist practice called the loving kindness meditation or metta bhavana, uh, which is really a cultivation of kindness and compassion. But that brings about an anti-inflammatory effect because it stimulates uh, the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is known as the caretaking nerve. So as well as being the rest and relax mode, so you breathe in, your heart rate increases, you breathe out, your heart rate decreases because the vagus nerve pulls it down as well as that. The vagus nerve also controls the inflammatory reflex, which is one of the primary ways that the body, the nervous system controls inflammation. And so copious amounts of research have found an increase in vagus nerve activity or vagal tone, as it's called, and, you know, akin to muscle tone. As a person practices metabhavana, the loving kindness meditation, and simultaneously an anti-inflammatory effect. So even the, the experience of self-compassion or compassion for others, we know from research has an anti-inflammatory effect. So now inflammation plays a role in, you know, I don't know every medical condition, but I think without exception, every serious disease we know about in the Western world, I, I, I don't think there's any disease I'm aware of that doesn't, that serious disease that doesn't have an inflammatory component. So you can reduce inflammation through empathy and compassion. I mean, there's an argument already for making that part of the, the relationship, part of the, the clinical experience between a doctor and a patient. There's an argument for having that, regardless of anything else, as part of the, the, of the, the relationship. And so, yeah, I think the next generation of medical practitioners should be you know, taught in, in, taught in how to, be, to heal themselves and to be able to understand the relationship and the importance of empathy and compassion and therefore working self-healing on ourselves. Certainly my experience is the more I've worked on healing myself, the more able I am to access a space inside myself where I can feel empathy or compassion for someone else. The less broken I feel, the more I can feel for someone else in a way that I'm, I can feel and wish them freedom from their suffering. Mm. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. Beautiful. You're just expanding on a, <laughs> you know, I, I, I worked as a, as a pediatrician and as an infectious disease physician. Mm. And I was always asked, like, what's your bug? You know, what's your bug? <laughs> <laughs> what's your bug? And I never, I never had a bug, you know? And I said, like, I'm interested in methods and you know, prevention mm. and like, I don't have a bug. Mm. Now, I, it's com- now it's compassion. <laughs> <laughs> My bug's compassion. And I thought at some point, maybe it's the love bug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's love, yeah. <laughs> and I realized that maybe one of the, maybe the most... The, the most um, the disease that is that is the most transmissible disease or the most frequently transmitted disease from human to human is is maybe non-love or non-compassion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what we are infecting us all the time, and now yeah. now you actually bring you connect this with inflammatory response. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's interesting. Now there's actually um, non-compassion stress um, is associated with with inflammatory processes. And we see an incredible increase in inflammatory diseases, autoimmune diseases, um, where where we might wonder to what degree um, a compassionate flow, access to compassion is... Um, is part of the paradigm. Yeah, yeah, yeah massively. I, I, you know, I, I do think, I think you're on. I love the work that you're doing. You know, even that sign behind you, heart-based medicine. Yeah, I think that's that's beautiful because that's what we need now. Not, not replacing medicine, bringing heart into yeah. existing practices and making the relationship and the the empathy and the compassion and the love and the kindness bring that into the healing equation because I think it's, it's 
missing a lot of the time, or it has been missing a lot of the time, in the sense that it's not been educated as something that matters. Yeah. We've over-clinical, we've made things over-clinical and forgot that heart, in the sense of compassion, love and compassion and kindness, are part of the, the healing experience. They're not, they're not separate from it. They are a vital, necessary part of it. And when we bring these in, surely it makes things better. And surely, if the world is so focused on a, the, we need the financial returns, then surely this will save the healthcare industry millions of dollars if we can bring that into it and perhaps be able to put some of the money saved to other ways that we can expand on healthcare, more comfortable ways, other fantastic research that we've not even conceived of perhaps or put it to use for other things like other programs other types of of development of the human species of of human society i should say i think we absolutely have to understand that heart is a absolutely vital part of the healing equation Mm. we've just forgotten about it Mm. typically until now Wow, thank you for such a strong plea. And, and I, I see that you're, uh, in a way, you have moved from being a drug designer for specific disease indications to a designer of um, molecules of kindness, I think. Yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. So, so you're, you're actually still, you're kind of, uh, let's say, what do you call it, like faithful to your to your trade <laughs> in developing molecules to serve healing. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> That's quite clever. So, so it's beautiful. So thank you so much. Thank you, David, for, for serving health so beautifully and, and through such a heartful and, and loving approach that you're taking and, and kind of, having the courage to speak up while staying very close to, you know, hard science and see what, what we can derive from it. Mm. And, and to really make that bridge that is, that is hard to make and that is so unreasonably dismissed by so many. So you're really, mm. I believe you're one of the key pioneers of this field. And um, I'm just uh, trying to bring together and give a voice, like heart-based medicine to me is a platform mm. Yeah. where I would love to see people like you um, interact, you know, create a platform where we have, where we bring these different voices together and, you know, like a work, like a lens, you know, where all these different lights that are out there, where we can, we can focus them and create a laser beam to yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it. Yeah. That would be wonderful. So thank yeah. you for sharing so much um, of your experience so much insight and and so much of your heart and love that is so very tangible you know even mm-hmm. even through all the technology of a zoom call mm-hmm. you're very present here thank mm-hmm. you well thank you i've had a really enjoyable conversation thanks for listening to this heart of healthcare podcast brought to you by heart-based medicine if you enjoyed the conversation you'll find some free resources and more information at heartbasedmedicine.org please share this episode if you feel inclined and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform until next time thanks and take care